Matthew chapter 4. I would that we begin reading in verse 23. We'll read into chapter 5, but just as far as verse 3. Really not get into the content of the Sermon on the Mount today. We will look at the preliminary things leading up to it. Matthew, the fourth chapter, beginning in verse 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers' disease. That sounds like a strange affliction. Put a little E on the end of divers, and you'll get the sense of the word diverse diseases, manifold kinds of diseases and torments. And those who were possessed with devils, and those who were lunatic, and those who had the palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven." We have been following chronologically the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ from its inception at the baptism of John down near Judea in the wilderness of the Jordan through its early Judean period, an early period that only John's gospel records for us, but now we are following it into its first Galilean phase, the ministry of Christ that normally centered in that northern region of Israel, referred to as Galilee. It is a wonderful ministry. Now, we think of the word wonderful in the sense of great. But remember that the word literally means full of wonder. In fact, Isaiah the prophet had said that his name would be called Wonderful. Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. You would call him this. And indeed, we see these wonderful works that he is doing. What began as a mere trickle in the beginning of his ministry, the changing of water into wine at Cana, some miracles that he did down at Jerusalem at the Feast of Passover, and then a miracle or two that he did back at Capernaum and so forth, now becomes a flood of miraculous doings. Now, there had been miracles before performed by various men, the prophets in the Old Testament. Their ministries were often accompanied by miracles. Oh, I say that. There are two prophets in particular, the prophet Elijah and Elisha, whose ministries especially were validated by miracles. But nothing like this. Oh, yes, they would perform a miracle or two along the way, but nothing quite like this. Do you remember our text last week? We found that Jesus had moved his sort of center of operations into Peter's home, and there he had healed Peter's mother-in-law sick of a fever. And suddenly the word is out, and by nighttime, when the sun is going down, when, keep in mind, in the primitive world, when life came to an end. I mean, you know, the sun goes down, you didn't turn on the lights, that's it, you, you know, you day's over. Instead, when the sun went down, he is besieged with people bringing their sick friends and relatives and so forth for him to lay his hands on them and to heal them. In fact, we read over there in our text that the crowds were such 
that Jesus had to go away in the middle of the night out into the desert to meditate and to pray. And when they found him the next day, they would have kept him by force. You understand then what is going on here. This vast multitude that is described here in these verses as following him. In verse 25, great multitudes of people from all over the place. Galilee, where he was. Decapolis, that region called the region of ten cities over on the other side of the Jordan. From Jerusalem and Judea down to the south and from beyond the Jordan over into the wilderness area. They're coming out of the woodwork, we would say, to find Jesus, to see these things that he's doing. Now, I want you to notice that the emphasis here in this text, although it does mention the fact of his wonderful works, the miracles that he's doing, the healings that he is performing. I want you to notice the emphasis in verse 23. Jesus went about all Galilee doing what? Teaching and preaching. That is the primary mission of Jesus. We saw it last week when we saw that crowd gather after he had healed Peter's mother-in-law. And they're going to hold him there. They're going to restrain him. They don't want him to leave. They don't want him to go anywhere else. And yet he says, I must go and preach to the other cities of Galilee, for therefore am I sent. This is the reason I'm here. Yes, his ministry is being validated in an unspecial and unusual way by the Father granting him these miracles to perform. Stamps of validation, if you will, upon what he's saying, what he's teaching. Do you remember last week we saw how the people are amazed at his authority? That first of all, he stands up and he says things no one else has ever said. And they keep scratching their heads. They say, wait a minute, where did he learn this stuff? I mean, this is Joseph and Mary's boy. This is the son of the carpenter. Uh, Not to any aspersion against carpenters, you understand, but we don't normally think of carpenters as brain surgeons or, you know, the the elite, the intellectual, uh, the intelligentsia of the world. That's probably not what we're going to find them at on the construction site. Where did he learn this? He hadn't been to school. He didn't go to Jerusalem and sit at the feet of a Gamaliel like Paul did. Where did he get this stuff? They marvel at his words, and especially they marvel that he taught with power and with authority. When he said something, there was something that went along with it. We're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount that he will say over and over again, You have heard that it hath been said of old, such and such. And yes, they had said that of old. Sometimes it's out of the law. Sometimes it's Moses saying this. Sometimes it may be some rabbi or some Pharisee. And he ends and says, But I say unto you, no matter who has said what, I'm telling you like it is. Now keep in mind, anybody can get up and sound authoritative. I'm teaching on the book of Revelation in Sunday school, and you know I can join the ranks of those who get up and dogmatically state this is going to be this and this is going to be this. The question is, am I right? And can I back it up? Anybody can claim anything. But in Jesus' case, time and time again, he validates what he says by the works the miraculous deeds that he does. But the important point was that he came to preach and to teach. The miracles are window dressing. They're the fluff. Now, I don't mean that the way it sounds. I mean, they're important, and we thank God for it. But you understand the miracles are intended to point you to the teaching and the preaching. 
The miracles are never intended to consume you and for your focus to be purely upon those that aspect of Christ's ministry. However, if Jesus were here today and started laying his hands on sick folks, heal them. How many of us have loved ones, family members, folks that we would rush out immediately and bring them to Jesus to get him to lay their hands on? You understand what I'm saying? There's probably not a family here in our church today that doesn't have someone that if Jesus were here in the flesh today performing the same kind of ministry as he was then in Galilee, we would have a sick person for him to heal. Do you understand how easy it is for that aspect to overwhelm the other? In other words, if we're sitting and listening to Jesus, we're sitting there saying, well, when's this going to be over so we can get to the good stuff? You know, somebody punch me and wake me up when we get to the healing stuff. And if you know anything about the modern religious scene, you know, if you watch uh, Trinity Broadcast Network, any and any of that, you know how easy it is for people to just become consumed with the idea. You would think that's all Jesus came to do, was to make you healthy and wealthy and happy. My friend, what he's saying here and why this is important. Yes, the healing ministry is important, but it's important because it validates what he says. His works are important because they validate and authenticate the words that come out of his mouth. Now, so I want you to, you know, get things in perspective here. That's our problem. So easy to lose what's first, what's primary. I remind you that those that Jesus healed in that day got sick again. They didn't stay healthy the rest of their lives, you know. Those that he fed with the loaves, they got hungry again. Those that he raised from the dead died again. You understand what I'm saying? This was all temporal stuff. Yes, it was visible. It was a visible sign of the invisible power and authority that he was claiming. But it was not lasting. It was not an everlasting thing. But what Jesus really came to do, and what his ministry gives us, is what, as he states, he that believes on me shall never hunger and never thirst. A man that believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. It is everlasting. It is eternal in its nature. So let's make sure we put first things first here. Now, if we were to sum up this body of teaching that Jesus was doing, if we want to put a label on it, we want to call it something, what would you call what he was teaching and preaching? What's the term we use, or what is the term that we find here? Well, let's use the terminology here. In Matthew 4, verse 23, it says, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching what? The gospel of the kingdom. So much of Jesus' teaching defines, involves, and identifies a thing called a kingdom. It's the good news, gospel meaning that, the good news of a kingdom. Now this kingdom generally is either called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. 
Right away, I want to try to dispose of the fiction that we hear from some dispensational circles that there is a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Let me just say that in the New Testament, those terms are used more or less interchangeably. In fact, the last verse we read here, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you read Luke's account of the same sermon, he says, Blessed are ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. It's clear they're just using the same a different phrase to speak of the same thing. They're not two separate kingdoms, one to the kingdom of God, one the kingdom of heaven. It's really just one and the same thing. Sometimes this kingdom is called, in fact, the kingdom of God's Son. You remember the verse over in Colossians 1 where Paul says that God has translated us from the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear Son. Or we may call it, as Paul does in Ephesians 5, verse 5, the kingdom of Christ. Look look at Ephesians 5. Same type of terminology. They're just different names for this same kingdom. Ephesians 5 and verse 5. For this you know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. It's the kingdom of Christ, the messianic kingdom, if you will, but it's also, as this phrase indicates, the kingdom of God. It's all one and the same. It is the kingdom of God mediated through the kingship of Jesus Christ, God's Son, the Messiah. So you can call it the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God's Son, or the kingdom of Christ, and you're all very perfectly right. It's all talking about the same thing. And it was a predicted kingdom. When I stand in the pulpits in our day and time, and I've preached on the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, in many, many places across the country, when I first began, I generally get this very blank look on the face of my hearers. They really don't know what exactly I'm talking about. Because, for instance, in dispensational circles, we have been led to believe that the kingdom is something that belongs to Israel, to the Jews, and to them alone. And when I speak of the gospel of the kingdom as something that is a present reality for Christians today, it's like all of a sudden it takes a little while to sort of uh, process that information. That Yes, it becomes very obvious after a while that that is the case, but we're just not accustomed to thinking in those terms. A first century Jew, on the other hand, was very accustomed to thinking in those terms. Someone living in the days of Jesus knew about kingdoms. He knew about a previous kingdom of Israel, and he especially knew that from the words of the Old Testament prophets, they had predicted a coming kingdom. Now, they had a kingdom in the days of David and Solomon, but of course, in the kings that followed, they lost the kingdom. It had fallen. They were were led into captivity by the Babylonians and had lived ever since, basically, by the will and whims of these great world empires that were upon the scene. They lost any kind of an independent kingdom. But they knew that the Old Testament prophets had promised them a kingdom. Now, I'm sort of twixt in between this morning whether I want to look up every one of these passages. I do want you to look at some of them. Let me just remind you of a couple of them, and then we'll look at a couple. I want to remind you that in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David, give, David is given a promise by God 
that a man of his seed will sit upon his throne forever and ever, and his kingdom will be everlasting. It's one of the first places that we see this thing called a kingdom promised. And it is promised to one of David's descendants, a man of your seed. One of your descendants will sit upon the throne forever and ever. Now, I think you're probably familiar with that passage. At least you've heard of that before. So let's go to another that you might not be so familiar with, Isaiah, the second chapter. Isaiah, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, one that is almost constantly quoted in the New Testament age, says this, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in the last day that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. Now if you were in Sunday school this morning, we talked about the fact how in Old Testament prophetic imagery a mountain is used as a symbol of a kingdom. And here you see how this is being used here. In the last days, he says, the mountain of the Lord's house. Well, the Lord's house, the temple, stood on a a mountain. If he was from the Rockies, you wouldn't call this a mountain. But anyway, if he was from from the Delta, you'd call anything higher than the hills of my house a, a mountain. But anyway, in their terminology, it was Mount Moriah on which the temple was built. And he's promising that this mountain is going to raise up and get to be where it's higher than any other mountain. And all the nations will flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. You understand in the symbolism, and they certainly understood it this way, Prophet Isaiah is promising them that in the last days they're going to receive a great kingdom. They'll be at the center of the world. All nations will flow unto this kingdom. That's how they would understand it. If you would, turn to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. We were in this chapter earlier today. Daniel has this vision of these four beasts representing these four kingdoms that were to arise on the face of the earth. But in the days of the fourth kingdom, which we understand as the Roman Empire, he says something's going to happen. In Daniel chapter 7 verse 9, he says, I beheld till the thrones were set and the ancient of days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, his ha- the hair of his head like pure wool, his throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels are as burning fire. Now, he's simply describing what we would call the throne of God here. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, the books were opened, and I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spoke. He had talked about this little horn earlier. And I beheld even till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, and yet their lives were prolonged for a season in time. And this is the important part. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him nigh before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all people and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. You get the idea. Daniel is seeing in this vision one like the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. Now that very terminology there is what caused the high priest to rip his garment at the trial of Jesus. Jesus, the high priest had said, I assure you by the living God, tell me who you are. And he says, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. And he rips his garment and says, that's it, he's blasphemed. Do you understand? He knew what that meant. He knew the terminology. He's talking about the fact that he's identifying himself with this one seen here in Daniel, drawing nigh the very throne of God and receiving this dominion and kingdom which will never, ever pass away. Got the picture? So, you living in the first century, in Jesus' day, you've got all this background. You've got all this teaching promising that there's this kingdom coming at the end of time, in the last days. By the way, in the biblical sense of the word, we're in the last days. The book of Hebrews begins with God who spoke in times past, hath in these last days spoken by his son. The coming of Christ divides all time between the times past and these last days. In these last days, the mountain of the Lord's house is going to be exalted. One other place. Go to Ezekiel. I'll just read one of these. Chapter 37. Ezekiel 37. This is right after Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones. If you don't know the vision, at least you know the song. When the bones came together, knee bone connected to the thigh bone and all that. Well, what Ezekiel is seeing is basically the spiritual regeneration of Israel. A nation that is dead and dried up, being raised, resurrected, regenerated. Okay? But that's not all that the prophecy is showing. I'm going to break in in verse 21. Ezekiel 37, 21. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen to which they are gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all. You get this idea of a kingdom and a king? Neither shall there be two nations or divided into two kingdoms anymore. They're not going to defile themselves with idolatry and so forth. Verse 24, And David... My servant shall be king over them. And they all shall have one shepherd. David, the shepherd king, will be their king. Now, if you're a literalist and you take the word of God absolutely literally, you would have to say, well, then David must be the promised Messiah. That's what he says here. He's going to come and be the king that reigns over them. But we would understand from other passages of Scripture, it is the son of David, it is the seed of David that will be the fulfillment, the true shepherd king that David foreshadowed and depicted. And verse 25, they're going to dwell in their land that I've given to Jacob and so forth. They'll be there forever. Notice verse 26, moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. I will place them and multiply them. I will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God and they shall be my people. You, you get the picture? And no doubt they would have understood this 
originally at least, in a very physical sense, in a very literal sense, that this means that God's going to regather us from the heathen where we've been scattered, going to put us back in Jerusalem, back in our homeland, going to rebuild the temple. I want to remind you, you who were here Thursday a week ago, do you remember when Brother Moore spoke on the true temple of God? The true temple isn't that building over there in Jerusalem. The true temple of God is the body of Jesus Christ. And when these promises that he will dwell with his people, and he'll be their God and they'll be their people, you read how Peter quotes that in his letters and he applies it to the New Testament church. Where does God dwell with his people? In the body of Christ with his people. My point being this, at the very least, a person living in the first century would have known, would have had all this background information about a kingdom, a great kingdom, a universal kingdom, an everlasting kingdom that has been promised to them. And then this hairy guy that eats bugs, wearing camel skin, suddenly shows up from the back 40, literally the back 40, from the wilderness. He, you know, they said, Malachi, the last words of the Old Testament, God says, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great day of the Lord. And man, this guy sure looks like Elijah. You'd read in the Old Testament how Elijah was dressed and how he, where he lived, and this guy looks a whole lot like Elijah. And you know the words coming out of this man's mouth, the man we know is John the Baptist. You know what he's saying? What the first message is? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then after him, the one that he points out as the coming Messiah begins to preach. And you know what the first message coming out of his mouth is? You'll, you'll find it. I know we're a long way from Matthew 4, but if you'll go back to Matthew 4... You'll see the very first words of Christ's public ministry. In Matthew 4, in verse 17, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Exactly what John had said. In other words, the idea is, you know that kingdom? The kingdom that was promised to David? The kingdom that was prophesied by Isaiah and the prophets. The kingdom that Daniel saw in this vision being established as the Son of Man came nigh the ancient... You, you know that kingdom? Well, of course they knew that kingdom. It's the one they've been looking for. One they've been hoping for. Now comes John and now comes Jesus saying, It's at hand. It's about to appear. It's almost here. That's why it's good news. It's gospel. That God is about to establish this kingdom. The kingdom of heaven that will never, ever pass away. Now can I, for a moment, say something about why you would call this the kingdom of heaven? Or the kingdom of God? Do you remember in Daniel, you Sunday school students, y'all should have this down pat by now. Those four beasts that Ezekiel saw in Daniel 7, anybody remember where they came from? How they appeared? Anybody know? Well, Daniel says he saw these four beasts rise up from the sea. In Revelation 13, y'all know all about the Antichrist over there, don't you? 
You've read Hal Lindsey at the very least. You know all about the beast and all this. Where did the beast come from? John said, I stood on the edge of the sea and I saw this beast come up, rise up out of the sea. My friend, that's how human worldly kingdoms occur. They arise from the earth. You know, somebody gets a little more power than somebody else and they subjugate other people, they dominate other people, they rule other people, and then somebody gets more power from them, kicks them off the throne, and they rule for a while. That's how it happens. Men seize the kingdoms. They seize power. They dominate. Kingdoms of this earth rise up. You know what's different about the kingdom of God? It doesn't rise up from the earth. In fact, John, when he's looking at the new Jerusalem, sort of this city that depicts that kingdom, where does he see it? I saw this this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. You get the sense there is this sort of play on words all the way through the New Testament, especially in John's gospel, of that which rises up from the earth and that which comes down from heaven. When Daniel had that vision, we read about it a moment ago, where was this kingdom being established? Was it being established by some Alexander the Great running around on earth conquering the world, weeping because he had no more world to conquer? No. It's being established in heaven. He is being given by God a kingdom that shall never pass away. You see the sense? See the difference? That's why we're, we're completely correct, by the way, when we sing, Heaven came down and glory filled my soul. That's what's going on. This kingdom is coming into this world from somewhere else. It is not of this world. You mean it's E.T.? Yeah, that's what I mean. It's otherworldly. It's not of this God in the heavens. Can I have you look at John's Gospel just a moment to try to pound some of this into your thinking? There are certain things that I would that you would not leave today not knowing, and this is one of them, this contrast. So let me do a little pounding. John 7. In verse 25, John seven twenty-five. Then said some of them of Jerusalem, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? But lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit we know this man, and from where he is. But when Christ cometh, No man knows from where he is. You see, you have this idea that Christ is coming from heaven, and we won't know where he originates, but we know this guy. We know he's from Nazareth. We know his mom and dad, at least we think we do. We know his brothers and sisters. We know where he's from, but when Messiah, he sure looks like Messiah, but you know, when Messiah comes, we're not supposed to know where he's from. Well, then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, You both know me, and you know from where I am. And I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom ye know not. But I know him, for I am from him, and he hath sent me. Yes, on the human level, you know who I am, and you know who I'm, where I'm from. You know my daddy, you think you do. But on the true and real level, no, you don't know where I'm from at all. I'm from him who sent me into this world. A little later in John's Gospel, look in John 8. John 8. 
verse 22. He's just told them that you're going to die in your sins and where I go you cannot come. John 8, 22, then said the Jews, well, he's going to commit suicide. Will he kill himself? Because he saith, where I go ye cannot come. And he said unto them, ye are from beneath. I am from above. Ye are of this world. I am not of this world. Do you get the contrast? In other words, we, we tend to think that, you know, everything down here is sort of God's territory and the devil is going around trying to invade and trying to capture all these kind of folks. Isn't that sort of how we think? You know, the devil got him. What this is saying to us is, no, that's not the way it is at all. The devil already has this world. Already got it. Already has dominion. Jesus told the Jews, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And they say, we don't need to be made free. Never were subject to anybody. Never under anybody's thumb. And he says, you're of your father, the devil, and his lust you'll do. When he says hop, you say how high. You've been obeying your father, the devil, all your life. And you don't even know it. You don't even realize you're captives. That's how complete your subjugation is. You don't even know you're his slave. All you know is, for some strange reason, you're doing exactly what the devil would have you do. The point being, it's not that Satan is down here trying to take control. He's already got control. But heaven has invaded earth. Someone who is not of this world has come from out yonder. I know I'm talking in science fiction language here, but that's how Jesus speaks. I came from my Father. I speak the words that I heard of my Father in heaven. I do the words that my Father, the works that my Father gave me to do. I've come from the Father. He sent me. And I'm not of this world. Oh, I, I've come and I've come just like us, just like you and me. He's just as human as you or I. Sin being accepted. He has our nature. But when it comes to who He is and His person, my friend, that person did not begin in a little manger in Bethlehem. That person is everlasting. Do you see the sense? Yes, His human beginnings. You know His human origins. And that's what He was telling them. You think you know where, I, where I'm from. You think you know my Father, but you don't know at all. You don't realize that, no, I didn't have my beginning in that manger. I've come from God. And I've invaded earth. And like the old science fiction movie, The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Y'all seen that? It's an interesting movie. You know, these people, as long as they don't fall asleep, they don't get them. So they're trying to keep from falling asleep. And having had struggles trying to stay awake, I, you know, this is a real terrifying thing. Somebody like me thinking about what that would be like. As soon as you fall asleep, they get you. I mean, you look just like you looked, but suddenly they got you. You're not one of, you're not, I mean, you like to say it. My friend, heaven has invading, invaded earth and is snatching bodies. Snatching bodies because it's conquering souls. Conquering. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's not 
that Jesus is down here trying to, in the little fort trying to hold on so the devil won't get everything. The devil is in complete control of this world, has been since Adam abdicated. But heaven has invaded earth with this thing called the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. And that good news, we're going to talk about what it contains, talk about the description of it and what follows in that very expanded version of this gospel called what we call the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus expounds this gospel of the kingdom. But basically it's this, that this kingdom that God has decreed and established in the heavens has now become a reality on earth. And you and I, by nature, are outside that kingdom. By nature, we belong to the dominion of Satan. And we must enter that kingdom. Do I have to take you through the New Testament and remind you of those places that we speak of men Entering in the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who saith, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but they who do the will of my Father. The rich young ruler, how hardly shall a rich man enter the kingdom of heaven? He put a child in their midst in Matthew 18. Instead of accept, you be converted and humble yourselves and become as this little child. Ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. John 3, except you be born of water and spirit, ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. My friend, by nature, you're outside that kingdom. By birth, you are not a citizen. It's by rebirth, by a new birth. That you enter this kingdom. Now obviously there's a lot about this that I'm not telling you this morning. What would I say over the next few weeks as we go into the Sermon on the Mount? And if there's any doubt in your mind that the Sermon on the Mount is just the full exposition of this gospel of the kingdom, may I remind you of the very first of the Beatitudes, the one we ended with this morning, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what it's all about. But I want to press on you today the fact that you're outside. If you are not a Christian, if you are not in Christ, you are by birth, by nature, outside the boundaries of this kingdom. You might be close. Jesus found a scribe that answered him very discreetly, and he says, Thou art not far from the kingdom of heaven. But I remind you, far and near had nothing to do with where he was standing. It had to do with his comprehension, his belief. Now, we have had in our recent history a remarkable happening. The collapse of the Soviet Union, the breaking down of the Iron Curtain, the demolition of the wall separating Berlin. For someone who is in my generation, I was born in 1948, never knew a Berlin that was not divided by a wall. It is an astounding thing to watch those Germans tearing down that wall. 
But can I take you back to the beginnings of when the Iron Curtain began to come apart? Do you remember what started it all? There was a bunch of Germans, East Germans, vacationing in Czechoslovakia when suddenly the doors opened to the West. You remember that? And they lined up for miles. Now, these are East Germans whose homes and possessions are back in East Germany. But suddenly, for some reason, they opened the gates to the West. And they lined up for miles to leave everything behind. They were on vacation. And suddenly, the opportunity presented itself to go to the West. And they left it all. And they defected. Just the other day, we heard of Cubans clinging to inner tubes, life rafts, trying to escape Cuba. Do you see the trouble, the pains that men go to, to leave one kingdom and to enter another? Do you think it shall be so in the kingdoms of men and the kingdoms of this world and shall not be so in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus, in eulogizing John the Baptist, says, The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Let me, let me give you the NIV rendition because I think it's more clearly portrayed. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. The word in Greek is violent men. Violent men violently seize the kingdom. It's like a a, a troop of marines taking a hill in Vietnam. They're storming the gates. They're utterly desperate. Jesus says from John, he's the culmination of the prophets. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven is being preached and men are squeezing in. Conrad Merle, I think, put it best when he said, folks, it's a free-for-all. Get in if you can get in. And some don't make it. In our day of easy believism, it's almost heresy for a preacher standing in the pulpit and says some folks that really trying to get in not going to make it. I'm just quoting Jesus. A scribe asked, are there many that be saved? And he said, strive. The word in Greek, agonai, agonize. Strive. Fight. Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many will seek to enter in and shall not be able. They'll want it. They'll want to get in and they won't be able. They don't want it bad enough. They don't want it desperately enough. You say, what will keep me from getting in? Well, look at the rich young ruler. How hardly, how hardly. Oh, with what difficulty a rich man will enter the kingdom of heaven. Because he can't get in with his riches. Not big enough. The hole's too small. I hadn't tried to put a camel through the eye of a needle in a long time. To be honest, I never tried that. I can hardly get a piece of thread through the eye of a needle. Let alone camel. 
And what Jesus is describing, absolutely impossible. One fellow says, Lord, I'll go with you anywhere you go, but first, let me bury my father. You know what his problem was? Is that word first. That's the problem. If he'd have said, Jesus, I'll follow you, I'll do whatever you say, and will you allow me to bury my father? That's one thing. But to say, I will follow you wherever you go, but first. My friend, to enter this kingdom, you can't have first and second and, you know, maybe down here on the list. I want to do this, I want to do that, and yes, I want to enter the kingdom. Uh-uh, not going to work. Unless first is to enter the kingdom, you're not going to make it. You're not going to get in. If there is anything or anyone that you love more than Christ, you will not get in. I'm just quoting Jesus. If any man love father, mother, son, daughter, his own life more than me, he cannot be my disciple. Those are his words. Do you see that, yes, there's this kingdom and it's invading men. It's captioned. I'm looking at faces this morning of folks that have been snatched. They've been snatched. I don't know how else to describe it. Well, Paul uses another word. He says translated. God has translated us from the power of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. It's like something got a hold of me. Something grabbed me. He said, what was it? I don't know. It's just this thing. It's... It's this thing about Jesus. The story of what Jesus has done for sinners. Of His death on that cross to die for the very people that hated Him. To cleanse their sins in His own blood. That's got a hold of me and it won't let me go. Now I'm going to ask you, where are you today? Are you in? Or are you out? If you're out, only way you're going to get in is to want to get in more than you want to live, more than you want things, more than you want stuff, more than you want friends, more than you want family, until Christ is first. You won't get in. Because my friend, what does it mean to be in a kingdom? What, what's the definition of being in? Except you bow your knee to the king. You submit your life to he, the son of man, who was given that kingdom by the ancient of days. Oh, may God make you so thirsty for the living water, so hungry for the bread of life that you cannot sleep, you can't eat, you can't do anything till you would say, I must have Christ. I must get to Him. Oh, I throw down the weapons of my warfare. I quit. I give it up. And I flee to Christ. 
You know, the, you know what those Cubans think when they're getting on those life, those inner tubes and coming across to Florida? They're saying they're, when, those fellows that are making a mad dash over the Berlin Wall, or those people that's coming through the border there at Jacksonville, they say we're going, we, we're free! We're free! Now they weren't free in the absolute sense, were they? No. They weren't absolutely free. They're just under the rule of another government. But compared to where they were, they're free. All the liberty they now enjoy. In communism, you could had liberty to do what they told you. That was your liberty. Now, you know, our government is much different. We can do just about anything we want except what they tell us we can't do. Over there, you could do whatever they told you you could do. Difference between night and day. But not absolutely free. And my friend, neither are you who enter the kingdom of Christ. You got a new master, you got a new Lord, but oh, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. You serve a master, a Lord who gave himself for you, who died for you, who loves you with an everlasting love. Oh, to be lost in that love is as free as you'll ever get. Let us pray. Father, would you pierce the hearts of those who might be outside the door, outside that straight gate, outside the boundaries of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Lord, you know the hearts of men as we do not know, as we cannot perceive. Lord, you know the need. And Lord, we ask that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, might come and might draw, might seize, might apprehend and lay hold of the lives of men. We plead for the kingdom of Christ to be more further established in this earth, to be advanced. And, oh, Father, may we never forget how it's advanced. Not men coming unwillingly into that kingdom, but men becoming so desperate for it. They cannot do anything but come to Christ. Lord, we know of no way that men who are in love with the things of this life and the temporal things of this world, in love with their flesh, in love with the pleasures of the world, will ever turn and abhor them and love Christ more than life unless you do a work of grace in the heart. Father, we ask for that. Move. In our midst, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.